0: Hello, survivalists! Welcome to The Crux. Once again, I am your host, Tessa King, and I am joined by my lovely sister and co host, Casey McIntosh. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another exciting week and another exciting story.
1: Always exciting.
0: Yeah, we love you.
1: <laughs> that is true. Just thank you for listening.
0: We appreciate you. We really do. There are five attempts to climb K2 before it was successfully summited. Charles Houston, a doctor from the US, had previously led an expedition in 1938 that had nearly been successful, but was unsuccessful. Nearly, but not quite. Not quite there. He was able to assemble a team to try again a second time in 1953. They were near to summiting the mountain when disaster struck okay casey so do you know anything about k2
1: i don't know a lot about k2 but what i do know is that it's an extremely difficult climb and that there have been a lot of attempts and i've heard that it's more dangerous than climbing everest i've heard that i don't know if that's true Well, you're about to find out. I'm so ready to find out. First, before you get into any details about this, I'm just picturing what kind of gear was available in the 50s. Can you imagine?
0: Oh, it probably wasn't great. In fact, I know it wasn't great based on some of the research I did. But they did get special gear from Eddie Bauer. This team did. Wow. Yeah. They had a special K2 named jacket. So I'm assuming the brand K2 didn't exist yet. If Eddie Bauer's like, here's my K2 jacket
1: true and then somebody was like oh k2 is a great name for a
0: company exactly see for a while i didn't know it was about the mountain k2 i just thought that was the ski brand so the more you know guys (laughs) the more you know
1: wow tessa
0: before i tell you the story i want to throw some k2 facts at you because i didn't know very much about it and i think it's very interesting It is the second highest mountain in the world after Everest. Everest is 29,029 feet, and K2 is just a little bit shorter at 28,251
1: feet. Wow, they're really close.
0: They are really close. So this mountain was named in 1856 when a British officer spotted two prominent peaks and dubbed them K1 and K2. Hmm. Standing for Karakorum... Karakoram 1 and Karakoram 2. What is Karakoram? I'll tell you. Karakoram is the mountain range spanning across Pakistan, India, and China. K1 has been renamed. It reverted to the name Masherbrum, which was the mountain's original local name. But K2 had no local name, and so thus the name stuck. It's been K2 ever since, even though K1 is no longer. Well,
1: it's a lot easier to just make it short and sweet.
0: K2. K2 is the only mountain over 8,000 meters, or roughly over 26,000 feet, that has never been climbed in the winter. So that means that even Mount Everest has been climbed in the winter. Wow. Very interesting. I'm sure you're wondering what the death rate is. The death rate for K2 summiters is about 1 in 4 or 5 people, or about 22%. And now this is just people who made it to the top of the mountain. There have been overall 91 deaths recorded on K2, and that's almost an overall 25% chance of death just for being on the mountain at all. Wow. In comparison, the death rate for people who summit Everest is about 3%.
1: Oh, that's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, right? The first attempt to climb the mountain was in 1902, which is really earlier than I thought it would be. But the first successful climb was executed in 1954. Hmm. So, as you can see, our guys in 1953 didn't make it. Sorry, spoilers. (laughs) However, it would be another 23 years before it was successfully summited again in 1977. Wow. That's a big gap. About 377 people have summited K2. In comparison, there have been over 4,000 people who have summited Everest. And altogether, 7,646 successful summits on Everest. So that's people who have climbed Everest more than one time.
1: Wow. Well, and it's interesting because I, I think that the whole notoriety for climbing the tallest mountain in the world has outshone K2, even though clearly that is the better, of the, or the more difficult and the bigger accomplishment of the two.
0: Very true. And for more than one reason, but we'll kind of dig into that in, in a minute. It costs between $16,000 and $32,000 to climb K2 today, depending on services you pay for. On the higher end, you'd have your own personal climbing Sherpa and four cylinders of supplemental oxygen. But on the low end, you would have no Sherpa and no uh, supplemental oxygen. So I feel like worth it.
1: Yeah. If it's going to increase your odds of not being in that 25% of
0: people that die up there. Mm Mm-hmm and an expedition up k2 could take as many as 52 days
1: wow that's a long time
0: yeah so it's not just a day trip (laughs) that's crazy and just as a side note i was reading online that actually the second summits or the seven second tallest summits in the world are more difficult than the seven summits that we talked about in the beckweathers episode Hmm. and probably just because of like you said the notoriety. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to do some comparison between K2 and Mount Everest. Oh, please do. I was actually really curious. I'm sure you were. That's (laughs) why we're digging it. What do you think makes K2 more difficult than Mount Everest? Just if you could throw me a guess. I want to say it has to do with like latitude or something. Okay.
1: Because the weather is worse, maybe. Okay. That's a good guess. Any other know. input, insight? No, I don't think so. Okay. I knew at one point, I just, it's not coming to me right now. <laughs> Maybe later. Maybe, li- probably not.
0: I'm going to engage your memory here. So, here are some differences as listed by mountainhomies.com.
1: Mountain Thank- Homies? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Mountain Homies.
0: I like it. The number one thing is getting there. Because Everest is in Nepal, which is already a welcoming tourist destination. And when you're approaching Everest Base Camp, it's on dirt roads. It's easy to hike on. And more recently, you know, if you go today, not in the 50s, you're going to be going to huts and tea houses and having your things ported Mm -hmm. with you. And K2, of course, is located in Pakistan, which is not a welcoming environment. It's not a tourist destination. No. No. And the approach just to base camp is really technical. It includes glacial ice, snow, rock. And so people are really prone to injury just on the way to base camp. And in many cases, there aren't Sherpas to help you.
1: How many days does it take to get to base camp?
0: I did not look that up.
1: (laughs) Slacker. (laughs) (laughs) Please still listen to us. It's okay. I'll look it up later.
0: Okay. Number two is the route up the mountain, which was your guess. Everest is climbed with a much greater frequency because it's got the notoriety, right? Mm-hmm. The routes are well laid out for this reason. It's got a gentler slope with lots of zigzagging switchbacks. And K2, the routes aren't well laid out. There aren't as many people climbing. The mountain is triangularly shaped, which means from day one, it's a steep climb, no matter which route you take. Right. There are also more technical obstacles along the way, such as the bottleneck. The bottleneck is only about 400 meters or 1,300 feet from the top, but it's full of hanging glaciers that are called seracs. 13 out of 14 of the most recent deaths have been through the bottleneck.
1: They're just people are falling off right there.
0: No, the glaciers are falling on them. Oh, it's my full gosh. of hanging glaciers.
1: The glaciers fall on them. I was picturing yeah. them like climbing up these glaciers. No, then... the bottle,
0: they're like bottlenecked through the area of the hanging glaciers. Wow. So anyway, neat. <laughs>
1: this sounds like a horror movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Also, the remote location. Everest has several towns closer to the route. K2 is much more remote.
1: Yeah, so if something happens up there, the likelihood of getting out... Is going to be less.
0: Right. Remember, Beck Weathers was helicopter rescued. Mm -hmm. They got him down a little bit lower, and they were able to do an air rescue. But if you get in trouble at K2, it might be a lot longer before you get help. And then there's the popularity. Of course, Everest is immensely popular, which means there are many companies with paid guides. They have more popular routes, and they have fixed ropes on the mountain, Mm -hmm. which I guess kind of goes hand in hand with the route. In addition, climbers are often roped to their Sherpas, so they're always with a guide. K2 has no fixed ropes. The climb focuses more on the team, and it is more vital for a team to consist of experienced mountaineers because there may or may not be people to help you with your gear. And avalanche risk. K2 is much more northern than Everest, which makes the weather more unpredictable. Avalanches are much more common on K2. K2. See, I was right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you knew. <laughs> and then an additional thing that I read is that the terrain, it's not all alpine in nature, meaning that there's a lot of jagged rocks sticking out. So it's not like I'm on ice the whole time mm-hmm. or I'm on rock the whole time. It's, yeah, it's very mixed. variable. So
1: Mixed climbing. Yeah. So let's talk about our guy in
0: 1953.
1: Can you answer one question for me first?
0: Well, we'll find out.
1: Can you remember the cost difference between climbing Everest and climbing K2?
0: I think it was a lot more for Everest. So,
1: yeah. I thought you said like 50000
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it might be almost like 100 I feel like it's almost as much as a house. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Everyone wants to know. I didn't even learn from my own podcast, guys. Well, maybe I'm wrong. It says... About forty-five thousand dollars. That's I was that's close. It. I guess fifty. I don't know. I thought as much as a house, as much as a nice car. Nice. But then, I think maybe that's just the climb. What's with the, with the flight and everything? Yeah. And the time off work.
1: Well, yeah. I thought that you said forty-five thousand dollars or somewhere in that range when Beck Weathers went, and that was in the nineties.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very expensive. See, here's another one. It says Everest South Coal for $80,000. This is if I wanted to book it right now through Alpine Ascents. Everest plus the lost face is $94,000. Anyway.
1: Yeah, so you were right.
0: Thanks for putting me through that rabbit hole. It was really important,
1: (laughs) it was very important.
0: Okay, back to 1953. Okay. Going in my time machine. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Charles Houston, which is spelled like Houston, but I watched a documentary, so I know. It's Houston. Had grown up climbing in the Alps with his father. His parents helped instill a love for the mountains and outdoors. When Charles was just 12, he walked with them from Geneva to Chamonix. 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 Okay, I'm sorry. Which is 56 miles with his parents. Wow. Can you imagine taking a 12-year-old that far?
1: Can you imagine going that far with your parents? <laughs> I would say no. Mm. Don't want to even think about
0: that. Maybe a lot of complaining. I
1: mean, I love you guys and all, but it's kind
0: of a lot of family time. <laughs> so after that trip... Houston knew as soon as age 13 that he wanted to be a doctor. He also knew that he wanted to be a mountaineer. And he's like, how do I make these two things happen? A
1: doctrineer.
0: And <laughs> a doctrineer. He went to college, he joined the Harvard Mountaineering Club. During the 30s, he was involved in many notable climbs, such as more uh, such as Mount Foraker in Alaska and Nanda Devi. Which is in India. Nanda Devi was the highest mountain climbed on earth at that time, which was in 1936. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, during that time, uh, Houston fell sick with food poisoning and he went down rather than finish the climb himself. So he was a part of the uh, climb, but he didn't summit.
1: Can you imagine a worse place to have food poisoning? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there is one, but like that would be a horrible, horrible oh, okay. place to have food poisoning.
0: I know, especially when it's history making. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I watched uh, a talk that he did in Vermont, Charles Houston, and he was talking about how he was always trying to skip out on school early, like six weeks early, so he could go do some big climb. So he'd be like, hey, can I take my exams now so I can go leave? (laughs) Wow. I don't think that would fly today, but it's pretty cool. Anyway, by 1953, there had already been four attempts to summit K-2. Like I said, the first was in 1902. Charles Houston had led his first expedition on K2 in 1938. That group made it about 8,000 meters, or 26,000 feet, which is the farthest anyone had gotten up the mountain at that time. So, still noteworthy. A year later, another American group would attempt to climb the mountain. This group only gained another 400 meters, and it ended with the death of its sponsor and three Sherpas. Sherpas. Bummer. Yeah. Houston himself returned to K2 in 1953 for another try with his friend, Robert Bates. Prior to going and climbing the mountain, they selected their team carefully. They knew that conflicting personalities could make or break their climb. They picked six climbers for their team. Robert Craig, who's from Seattle and was a ski instructor. Art Gilkey, who is from Iowa and he was a geologist. Dee Molinaire, who is from Seattle, and he was also a geologist and artist. Hmm. Pete Schoening, and it just said he was from Seattle. I have no idea what he did. Uh, George Bell, who is from Los Alamos, who is a nuclear scientist. And Tony Strether, who is the standout because he was an English Army officer. Oh. <laughs> or wildcard. <laughs> This expedition was privately funded. The team had some corporate sponsorships, but they mostly came in the form of food and equipment. Hey, Eddie Bauer. Altogether, it cost about $32,000 for them to do this climb. All of them. Yes. But according to the inflation calculator on Google, that would be about $362,000 wow. today.
1: I'm so impressed that you looked that up.
0: I was curious. So I say that's pretty expensive. Yeah. I mean, divide that by eight, it still seems expensive. Still, a lot of money. Getting to the mountain was a feat itself. They met up with porters and arranged the porters with all their gear, and they had to cover a lot of ground to start their climb, including crossing several rivers with rafts. They established the base camp at the same spot where they camped in 1938. This was the last spot that they would have good access to water, so it was a final luxury to bathe before their ascent. When they started, they climbed rope together, and they stayed rope together throughout the entirety of the climb due to the danger of falling into a crevasse. So Charles Houston was quoted as saying, The rope has a psychological bond because the climber knows that his or her life is in the hand of their companions. The porters in the group only went as far as Camp 2, as they were not trained for alpine climbing. So they did have porters to begin with, but they didn't go very far.
1: Yeah, so that saves you just a little bit of energy, Mm -hmm. but...
0: And they're there to be ready with food and drink when you get back, but... I think they made it up to an eighth camp. That was the highest they got. So that's a lot of nights of camping without any support. And once again, to contrast that to today climbing Everest, that seems cush. (laughs) Yeah. At Camp 2, Robert Bates gets a severely abscessed tooth. And Houston pulls it out so they can continue.
1: Oh, that's terrible.
0: He said to the great relief of patient and doctor.
1: Oh my gosh, I hope they had some kind of pain medicine.
0: Well, I was watching this documentary and they had pictures of him pulling out the tooth and Houston said how easy it came out.
1: Well, that's So good. it
0: must have been really infected for yeah. it just to whoop. And I guess he was a doctor, so it's better than not a doctor taking out your tooth.
1: Yeah, I guess though. So. Marginally better.
0: Yeah. They ran into their first storm at Camp 3. They said it was pretty bad, but nothing in comparison to what was ahead of us. Even at Camp 3, they could hear avalanches across the mountain roar. They had to strategically plan their climb, so snow settled on the ridges they are planning to ascend, because they knew the danger as other avalanches are going on. The climb moves more slowly during... uh, The climb moves more slowly due to the terrain and also the altitude. And because Houston is a doctor, he realizes the importance of getting acclimated. Mm -hmm. By the beginning of August, our team had gotten to the same spot achieved in 1938, the spot known as the shoulder. They suspected only three good days were needed to achieve the summit. The weather was bad. Houston and George Bell were sharing a tent that was torn away completely by the conditions. Oh no. Yeah. They were beginning to think that if you didn't move in bad weather up the mountain, you wouldn't move at all. On August 7th, the geologist, Art Gilkey, came out of his tent in the morning and collapsed unconscious in the snow. He had developed phlebitis, which is...
1: Inflammation of veins, but that's a really weird thing to make you pass out on the top of a
0: mountain. Blood clots in his left leg.
1: Oh, he had probably a pulmonary embolism or something.
0: As a doctor and experienced climber, Houston realized this was likely a death sentence for Gilkey. It would be extremely lucky to get him back to base camp alive, but he knew that the team would certainly want to try. So the summit... It was out of the question at this point. This was turnaround.
1: And it probably was a good thing because they already knew the weather was so horrible and they were going to risk everyone's life by continuing. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was a good get at a jail free card.
0: It was bad either way because bad weather going up, bad weather going down. That's true. They had tried to get down the mountain on that same day, but an avalanche was triggered on the slope below them, making it simply too dangerous to go back the way they came up. The weather delayed the team for an additional three days. The avalanche danger was too high for them to risk leaving their camp. The group had also found an alternative route to go back to the camp below, Camp Number 7. But they still had to wait several days for the storms to continue and be in a good enough state to climb down. And in that time, Gilkey's condition steadily worsened. His right leg became involved and the clots eventually carried to his lungs. The team felt they needed to move as they were also feeling weak, undernourished, and dehydrated. So the team wraps Gilkey in a sleeping bag in the aforementioned smashed tent. They begin to inch him down the mountain in a raging blizzard. The team moved through a narrow gully where they're almost taken out by an avalanche that went over their heads. And in listening to this documentary where all these guys are recorded, talking to each other, explaining the events. Some of them are like, I don't know how we got through this. It went over us and people were still standing. I don't know. That's crazy. (laughs) It is pretty crazy. And here it just kind of glossed over. So like, yeah, we missed an avalanche.
1: Yeah. Hmm.
0: The team had lowered Gilkey over a cliff and onto a steep ledge below when George Bell, who had frostbitten feet, slipped. This drug his rope mate, Tony Strether with him and dislodged other members of the team. Oh, no. Once off the slope, they would drop hundreds of meters and to the glacier below. <gasps> yeah. But luckily, there was a sudden jerk... And miraculously, we were all held. That was Tony Strether who said that. Robert Bates was quoted saying, It was like falling off a slanting Empire State Building six times as high as the real one. Five falling climbers were halted on the lip of the abyss by the skilled belaying technique of Pete Shoning, who is not only supporting the weight of the climbers, but also Gilkey, who was suspended below. He was about 200 feet above the group. Tony Streler said, It was really remarkable that Pete was able to hold all five of us. If Pete hadn't done that wonderful job, he would have been pulled off himself. Houston was in bad shape. He lay unconscious on a narrow shelf. His friend Robert Bates was able to rouse him. When Bates had come to an abrupt stop, he had unroped himself and made his way to Houston. Houston was very disoriented and had no idea where he was. He kept asking, what are we doing here? Over and over. Bates said to Houston, if you ever want to see Dorcas and Penny, again, climb up there right now. Dorcas and Penny are his wife and daughter. He ordered Houston to climb the last 50 meters to camp, so back up. The group were shocked at their own survival. The climbers, exhausted, made their way back up to the nearest camp, Camp 7. Gilkey had been left anchored steadily by two ice axes and told that the group would be back after the camp was set up and the injured team members were looked after. We were all terribly weak and having some sort of trouble, said Bates. By the time we had the two tents set up, we had probably been away from art for 45 minutes or possibly an hour. After establishing the camp, three of the climbers went back to get Gilkey, who would have been only about 150 feet away. To our amazement, the slope was bare, said one of the climbers. He slid off. Yeah. No way. Yeah. He had vanished, presumably swept away in an avalanche while they were gone. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: How would they not hear that if it was only 150 feet away?
0: Only a faint groove in the snow was an indication of where he had been. The team was shocked and saddened by this realization. One of them said, we never heard it. We never saw it. The slope was bare and Art was gone. It was just as if the hand of God had swept him away. And that was that with Art. Wow. They said, the mountain fouled us all the way down to Camp 2. On the way down, the weather never let up and the route was entirely different from what they went up. The rock was ice-covered and the men had to navigate carefully down the mountain as to not slide down it. The team had mo uh, The team had lost much of their supplies during the accident, food, and fuel, and so they had to get down the mountain as quickly as they could. At this point, they hardly had anything to drink, and they took to mixing jam with snow. It was later speculated that this was the most merciful thing that could have happened to the team, losing Gilkey. The team never would have abandoned Gilkey on the mountain, but they probably wouldn't have been able to bring him down alive. Some people have suggested that Gilkey realized that his rescue was endangering the lives of others, and that he indicted himself from the mountainside and intentionally sacrificed himself.
1: Can you imagine doing that? I mean, I don't know how bad it would have to be before you're like, "I'm just going to jump off this ledge."
0: Right. I don't know what it's like to have blood clots in your lungs.
1: Yeah, I mean, he may- he probably wouldn't have made it even if they would have been able to get him off the mountain.
0: And. It's all speculation, right? Because some of these guys are like, everybody was so weak. How is it even possible that he could have untied himself from the ice axis? Yeah. What's the likelihood of that? So nobody really knows. The descent to base camp took an additional five days from that camp seven.
1: Oh, that's terrible.
0: All the climbers were exhausted. George Bell's feet were badly frostbitten and Charles Houston had sustained a head injury and was concussed. Houston later said that while he was proud of the team's attempt to rescue Gilkey, he felt the successful descent was the greater achievement. On their way down, the climbers saw a broken ice axe and some other bloodstained rocks, but no other trace of Art Gilkey was found at that time. After this climb, Charles Houston never attempted another high mountain climb. In fact, a year after, K2 was finally summited by an Italian expedition. So, kind of a bummer (laughs) that it ended up that way.
1: Yeah, but he also has a family. So,
0: I mean, I guess a lot of these people do, but that was probably enough for him. Mm -hmm. And in this doc I watched, he said that this climb was the turning point for him. That makes sense. Well, yeah, and he settled into teaching medicine at the University of Vermont, and he became a great authority on altitude sickness.
1: That's interesting. That makes yeah. sense.
0: Yeah, and so it was really interesting because he would talk about working with pressurization and seeing what the human body could handle at high elevation just by mimicking it in a lab setting, not so much like <laughs> climbing himself. Yeah. yeah. So this documentary is called The Brotherhood of the Rope if anybody wants to watch it. And he's a pretty good storyteller. He died at the age of 96. And he must have been pretty old when he did this. I think this talk was in 2005. Anyway, I think that they recovered Gilkey's body in the 90s. Oh, wow. So they did eventually find him. And that's the story of the 1953 climb.
1: I think it's so interesting that people are sort of mummified up on the mountains you know Mm -hmm. but they don't take the bodies off of
0: everest right i think that it had moved down like it was exposed due to weather oh he was found in 1993 melting out of the glacier at the base of the south face of k2
1: what's unfortunate is all of his family was probably long gone by the time his body was recovered
0: that's very true yeah. I mean, th- this whole thing was interesting because, like you said, the gear and what it actually takes to climb a mountain in the 50s has got to be way different. And even some of these articles, was they were saying that Charles Houston really didn't like the newer climbs to Everest with all the gear and all the money going into it. Yeah. Like it was a touristy thing. It wasn't
1: authentic enough.
0: Yeah. It wasn't in the true mountaineering spirit anymore. Yeah. And he was alive when all these people died on Everest that year of Beck Weathers too. Mm -hmm. So he had his opinions, for sure. Interesting.
1: It's a good story. Thank you for summarizing all of that for us, Tessa. You're so welcome.
0: (laughs) 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 I'm here every week for you. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed our story today or our stories all the other times, please leave us a nice review on... Apple Podcasts, you keep us going. It's very true, you do. And stay alive until next week. Stay alive. Goodbye.